Hello and welcome to Reading People. I'm Megan and I'm with Belle and Sophia in the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden to talk to Alex Beard. Alex has been Chief Executive of the Royal Opera House since 2013. Prior to this, he developed the success of the Tate Modern and the UK Network of Galleries, with his last role being Deputy Director. With a report from Arts Council England saying the arts contribute more to the UK economy than agriculture and even some UK cities, this is a great time to talk to Alex, who heads up this iconic institution. Thank Hello. you very much for talking to us uh, today. It's a great pleasure to, to be talking to you. Okay, so we'd like to start by asking why did you choose to study classics? Oh God! Well, basically because I was determined not to be a doctor, so <laughs> I, uh, I was not because I had any great drive to be a classicist. I come from an amazingly medical family, uh, generations and generations of doctors. I guess it's something to do with the surname, you know, the expression "nominative determinism." That's when what your what your name is influences your profession. So if you're called Larry, you're more likely to be a liar. All those sort of weird connections of um, uh, names and professions. So with a beard, I think I finally became barbers and barbers became surgeons and surgeons obviously medics so if you look through the family just wall-to-wall doctors my father was a plastic surgeon my uncle a urologist my other uncle a gynecologist my aunt an anaesthetist that's my quite grandfather was an anaesthetist etc 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 all the way back for donkey's ears and I just knew that one thing I did not want to be was one of them and I didn't want to have uh, conversations about latest drugs over the breakfast table. Uh, not because I think that there's anything wrong with being a medic. In fact, I'm really proud that my son Alf is in the middle of studying for uh, medicine at Cambridge, but uh, it just wasn't for me. I wasn't um, particularly motivated or particularly academic. Uh, I um, Actually, when I was at Manchester Grammar, which I was up to O-levels, um, there I was pretty miserable, actually, because I had a long commute from Preston, didn't have many friends. My mum was a teacher at the school. That was all a bit awkward. So I dived into the books um, and, and studied a bit, so I got really good grades. But as soon as I went to Westminster in the sixth form, which involves a weekend staying with my grandparents and during the week going to school, I basically thought, um, you know, there are 500 pubs within walking distance of the school, the fact that there are girls in the sixth form, you know, this is way more my kind of place. And um, that coincided with uh, teachers who uh, were much more interested in talking about the books that inspired them rather than teaching for the syllabus. So I went from basically straight A's to BDE in 18 months. Anyway, and I was a, 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 as lousy a university student as I was an A-level student. Um, in fact, I, um, uh, I, I got a letter of dismissal from King's College London at the end of the second year for not having turned up once during the year. I spent most of the second year in Paris with my uh, then-girlfriend, and when I wasn't in Paris, I was doing the standard crossword or going to the pub, which made it all the more ironic when, years and years later, they offered me a fellowship at the university. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I managed to... That's another story. But, uh, but anyway, I managed to blag my way back in and scrape to 2-2 at the end of it. And it was only in that last year that uh, I actually did some work and actually got to enjoy it. But up until that moment, classics was purely an escape route for medicine and away into university with ridiculously poor A-levels. You know, if I could rerun it all again, I'd, um, I'd taken it a hell of a lot more seriously, but anyway, there you go. We asked you to select some books 
and one of those books is the Iliad. So when did you discover that? I first discovered it uh, when I was doing Greek O-level and then that came back to me when I was at university. It's the most fantastic story about love, betrayal, loss of friendship, very harsh um, morality to it. You know, it doesn't matter what you think, it's what you do that matters. I love the personification of the gods. It's just a, a, the most exquisite um, piece of writing as well, some uh, beautiful little phrases. Mm. I studied Latin at A level, mm. and so really enjoyed looking into more about the the moral values and the honour that's associated yeah. with battle, and it's just interesting the different customs. I find it interesting that you also picked the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because there are very similar themes running through that. Even though it would be billed as a children's book, you've got the honour and the betrayal and the battle between yeah, good yeah. and evil. Yeah, with an overwhelming sense of morality. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe I picked. Um, Partly because I wasn't terribly happy at that time of my life, and so, you know, a, a sort of deeply moral escape was super important. I completely lost myself in that world. Well, I could have picked up any of the Narnia series, so I absolutely adored them, reread them the whole time. It'd be quite good to just go through a wardrobe and time yes. to stand yeah. still and have a good skilter. I did yeah. actually try and climb through the back of my wardrobe once, but uh, <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> well, we had a marvellous Christmas party when the, uh, the Tate, where the theme was Narnia. And, oh, there's wow. a cor- and there's a corridor between um, the Claw Gallery and uh, which was a building site at the time and um, the main Devine Galleries with Central Sculpture Court and we lined them with hundreds of fur coats so you had to sort of walk through this sort of musty fur coat pre-walked out into the, into the party there. Brilliant. <laughs> After you graduated from uni, you went to work for Pete Marwick, which is now KPMG. Yeah. Um, how did you end up working in such a corporate world, having studied classics? There's a bit in between. I basically asked around doing nothing, a bit of sailing, including in the Caribbean. Anyway, I just racked up tons of debts. My father died when I was 17. Um, my mum didn't have any money. The only person who had any money in the family was my grandfather, John Beard. He's a rather severe Wimbledon doctor. So I went to see him in his study and said, look, you pay my 2,347 quid um, credit card uh, bills off, which is quite a lot of money in 1980, whatever it was, for. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Looked at the cheque and thought, phew, this is fantastic. But hang on a second, you haven't signed it. And he said, no, I'm not going to until you get a proper job. And for him, the definition of a proper job was either a lawyer, um, a medic, an actuary, or an accountant. A lawyer, a whole new degree, never was going to do that. Medic, well, I'd set my sights against medicine since I was whatever, so there's no way that was going to happen. Actuary, oh, no, come on, I've got some self respect, so that just left <laughs> an accountancy. And then um, I went off and applied for various accountancy trainee jobs, and Pete Marwick gave me the job. Uh, the deal was that all honour would be satisfied. Um, uh, um, once I passed uh, my exams and I took that to mean an exam and he took it to mean finals and so anyway um, when I passed my graduate conversion course I resigned and went back running around doing a bit of sailing racking up debts so why I ended up in, in, in accountancy was basically blackmail blackmail from the family yep. I think it happens to all of us at some point or yep. another yeah but actually uh, I mean without that um, 10 months at P. Marwick you know, none of the rest of the career would have happened so after that did you, you move to the Arts Council I um, applied for various temp jobs 
Uh, first one was helping to run a bar, which I was completely useless at. The second one was working in the post room of Oyez Longman, the legal publishers. Um, I had a blazing round with the deeply racist manager of the post room and walked out of that job. And anyway, so I was trundling along and, and I had to pass a read accountancy on my open. And in there was a little sticker saying that Arts Council was looking for a clerk in the finance department. And I thought, Arts Council? Hmm, yeah, that sounds a bit more interesting than the other bit. Finance department, well, I suppose I'm a dropout accountant. They uh, took me on as a week's assignment. That week turned into a permanent job, and uh, the Arts Council being the Arts Council, there was a restructuring every 10 months to a year and a half, and through each of those restructurings, new opportunities presented themselves, and what was a clerk gig turned into five different jobs, at the end of which I was head of finance and business assessment, looking after um, the money side of supporting the big organisations, including, as it happens, the World Opera House. And did that appeal more to you, having had the experience of a more corporate Well, the Arts Council clicked because we understand our place in the world through storytelling, access storytelling on steroids. Um, my mum is a musician, she's a flautist, and so music was always in the house. I used to scratch the cello, you know, that sort of thing. It was the first time, actually, when I did anything where um, what I believed in um, clicked with the place that I was working mm-hmm. I, I suppose I went from being a kid who would do absolutely the bare minimum to thinking, well, actually, hang on, this is an organisation that stands for stuff I believe in, it's trying to do stuff I think it's important. And actually, people are really interesting as well and got a lot out of that. You've said before that when you applied for your first role at Tate, yeah. you didn't have the right qualifications basically for the role. They took you on, they took a punt. Yeah. What kind of traits did you have that you think made them go, yeah? Oh, I think you'd have to ask them, but um, my time at the Arts Council gave me an understanding of the relationship between a funder and an arts organisation about how to deal with stakeholders in a pretty sophisticated way. Um, It also gave me exposure to lots of different arts organisations, lots of different operating environments and lots of different approaches that if you are a bit of an intellectual magpie, which I am, that you can absorb and pick up um, and synthesise tons of stuff and if you can convert that in with a thin veneer of plausibility that makes you talk a decent game. Uh, Third is a good helicopter view of how the different back office administrative uh, marketing business functions need to come together to support an arts organisation. But I think also I'm pretty good at building relationships Mm -hmm. and I'm also pretty good at knowing what I don't know and building relationships with people who do. So I guess those things came out through the interview process, which was grueling, six different interviews and a round of psychometric testing. And -hmm. and the only reason why I applied for the Tate in the first place was because of the Opera House. So in 1991, I was a secretary of a commission of inquiry into the Royal Opera House that the Arts Council was running. It's called the Warnock Review, where the moral philosopher Mary Warnock was the chair of that. And there were a number of external people on the committee. One of whom uh, was an incredibly important person in my life, someone called Dennis Stevenson, now Lord Stevenson. We got on well and he is always on the lookout for young people with potential, partly because that's his life story. So he was in his 20s invited to chair the Peter Lee Development Corporation by Peter Walker and he grew a huge amount through that. And I'll never forget this, he he asked me how long I'd worked at the Arts Council at that time and I said four going on five years. And he sort of thumped the table and said that's absolutely ridiculous. 
need to do something and with pretty much that sort of inflection. And I thought, well, I'm cranky, you're not wrong. So, you know, I, I thought, right, I'd better get off my butt and do something. So I started applying for jobs and eventually I was offered a finance and administration director at Scottish Opera, which is sort of my dream job. So uh, opera, uh, classical music, um, you know, theatre, I absolutely loved all that stuff. But anyway, the last three weeks of that process, I met and fell head over heels in love with Kate, who now together as life partners, got kids together. And I just knew that I'd have to choose between the job of my dreams or the girl of my dreams. And the reason for that is that Kate's life journey is from rural Northumberland to Notting Hill. So there's absolutely no way she was going to reverse up the M1 three weeks into a relationship <laughs> to be an opera widow in Glasgow. It just was not going to happen. And um, it, but anyway, before I made the wrong decision, I got a call from headhunters from the Tate, who were looking for a director of finance and admin. And the only reason why they called me was because Dennis was chairman. And when I read the brief of it, I thought, well, you know, there's no way I should apply for that because they're looking for a. a Chartered accountant or an MBA, he's run a big part of a consumer facing business, they've done building projects, they're thinking about Tate Modern. And anyway, Kate said, It's a bit tough, the only reason why they phoned you off is because of Dennis. And I go, Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so there must be some chance. So I said goodbye to Scottish Opera and chucked my hat in the ring for the Tate. Whilst you were there, you had quite a major role in deciding on the site of the Tate Modern. Did you ever imagine that it would be as big a success as it is now? We thought it would be a success, but we, no, we didn't think it was going to be quite the phenomenon that it is now. But we went into it with ambition and confidence. And I was more the sort of technocratic bit of the decision-making. The real decision about Bankside was taken by Nick actually quite a bit before I joined, although we didn't actually make it official until after I joined. My job was to do a desk study that would demonstrate the merits of the four sites under consideration. Where the O2 is in Greenwich um, was one site, Tate Britain was the second, where the London Eye is was the third, and Bankside Power Station was the fourth, and I basically said that um, the site that made most sense was uh, where the London Eye is, because it could be a new build opposite the House of Parliament, next door to the South Bank Centre, established transport infrastructure. And I sent the draft in to Nick and he said, well, it's all very interesting, but you actually haven't been inside Bankside Power station have you? And I said, no, it's a desk study. And so he hopped into his car and drove around the back of Bankside and walked into the turbine hall and sort of on cue, two pigeons fluttered up and just thought, wow, yeah, this is amazing. Absolutely, it has to be here. And that was a really important lesson for me, actually, because it reinforced how important it is to get the uh, you know, emotional side of a big decision right as well as you know, whatever it looks like on paper and nothing quite captures the feeling of walking into that turbine hall. We are really lucky in the UK to have so many galleries that we can visit for free. I was actually recently in Iceland. I was talking to a lady that worked in this gallery and she let me in for free. She said to say thank you for all the free exhibitions that she got to see when she visits the UK, which was pretty amazing. Do yeah. you think that we can continue to do the free galleries? I think it's important and I think we can continue to do it. The objects and the paintings, they don't belong to the institution, they belong to the, each and every one of you. They're a collective asset. And I think that being able to develop a relationship over time with those works of art um, is really important. And to not have to feel that you have to do the take, but that you can visit a room, see a couple of objects. The most wonderful thing about being here is nipping into the National Gallery every so often. But also, from a business perspective, although the collection is free, I mean, nothing else is. You know, Harrods is 
free, um, but there are tons of opportunities to spend. Well, you know, the Tate is free to rent, but there are tons of opportunities to spend. Temporary exhibitions, shops, cafes, restaurants, bars. So I think the combination of the philosophical relationship between the great national collections and everyone in the country on the one hand, and actually you've still got tons of ways of making money on the other. Mm. So is there a sort of happy balance then in terms of funding for arts organisations? So with the Royal Arts, I think is experiencing some cuts from the Arts Council. Yeah. How can these organisations remain resilient and well, I think there are three legs. Number one is public support. It allows you to take more risks than you would otherwise. But also, it creates a line of accountability that's not just to your audience. And it creates an obligation alongside the charitable status. Look beyond those people who can currently enjoy your work to those people who could. Whether that's um, through supporting uh, educational activity or extending access through broadcast, through relays, through audience development, um, young ROH schemes or whatever. The second bit is, I think it's really important to be uh, accountable to your audience. In our case, having to generate 45 million quid every year from the box office, 96% occupancy at least. Yeah, that keeps you honest. And then the third is that these institutions are part of the public good and there's never going to be enough money coming from box office and government alone to be able to fulfil our potential. So inspiring those people who can give, philanthropists, and sponsors, patrons, and being able to do much, much more, particularly in education, but also in new work. I hope whatever happens that we'll always have those three. I think decline or the best standstill in public funding is pretty well inevitable, just because of all the other pressures that are going on. Mm. And you know, if we're living uh, longer, then the burden of that places on social care on the NHS is huge and will take more um, tax money. And this government changes very significantly uh, in priorities. I think the arts will be under pressure. Personally, I think that's very short-sighted. You know, as a, as a, but earlier, I mean, you know, what defines us as humans is to tell stories and to engage and communicate about the really big stuff in life, you know, what it is to live, to love and to lose. So we can assume that you are not a fan of the cuts to creative subject funding in schools? Totally not, I think it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, uh, I really do, I mean, I, I, and I'm, I'm not making a point about the number of people who do music A-level particularly. It's more that an education should be about understanding yourself and your place in the world and your potential in the world. Of course, you need to be equipped with numeracy and literacy. You need to understand the complexities of the box within which we operate, but as important as the shape and size of that box is what goes on it. And that's about... Uh, I think, at heart, individual creativity, aspiration, potential, and, uh, and the arts are absolutely the heart of that. Teamwork, coming together to make a performance. But, and then also, I think, thinking outside yourself. You know, wherever you are in your current world, you know, imaginative powers, I think, beyond that, to be inspired mm-hmm. by the story is absolutely key. So uh, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> but I think it's about school orchestras, singing, access to instruments, good quality arts teachers, as much as it is a place of a particular subject in an academic curriculum. Did you experience the opera or ballet as a child? My first experience was at the age of 11 when a babysitting option fell through for my mum and she took me to the Valkyra 
Valkyries. That's a great angle one to start with. Yeah, well, could have been been Siegfried, but um, it was when we lived in Manchester. Her plan was to leave me with the grandparents in West London. She'd see the show, we'd do museums on the Sunday, and then go back up to Manchester. But those plans had to change because my grandparents had to leave town at short notice. So she was left in her left hand with a single ticket and her right hand with me. And so she went to the box office and said, can you sort me out with a ticket? And they went, oh, you've got to be joking. There's a terms queue round the block. There's no way it's definitely set out. First night of revival, no chance. So she did anything she could, but just burst into tears and caused a massive scene. Um, <laughs> I still remember feeling ashamed of that, actually. And, and the days went, oh, no, no, please, 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 just wait, give us 10 minutes. And they came back and said that um, they'd managed to persuade one of the larger gentlemen in the standing place to swap his spot for her seat in the balcony and that the two of us would shuffle up. And so long as, I quote unquote, he doesn't flinch, pointing at me, it would be okay. So that was my introduction and standing rigidly for four hours, 24 of music, six hours of time of um, Valkyrie. <laughs> the whole experience of something like that is just so overwhelming. The music of the opening storm scene and the ride of the Valkyries. And, you know, I didn't have a critically refined response to it at all, but I did think the place, the forces at work, the whole experience was just unbelievable. And I guess that stuck. I'd come to the other show here when I was at uni, queuing up for cheap seats. There's something I find particularly engrossing about opera because there's so much going on that it's almost inconceivable that it can come together and work. I got into ballet thanks to one of our sponsors at the Tate who would ask me to events at the Opera House. If it was opera, I'd go like a shot. If it was ballet, I'd cough politely and buy me tickets off to <laughs> people who enjoyed that sort of thing. One time, uh, the two people I gave tickets to regularly, uh, none of them could come. And it took Kate long to see the ballet I said, bad luck, I'm afraid I've got to go. And within five minutes, I was just transported. I thought, you know, what have I been doing for the last 43 <laughs> years? This is amazing. Um, so with that in mind, what do you think the biggest challenge is to encourage new audiences? All the prejudices, you know, it's not for me, sort of stuff. Yeah. It's almost always for people who haven't seen it. I think what's a particularly exciting at the moment is that there are ways now of giving a taste, at least, of you know, what it's all about outside the walls of, of the theatre, whether that's through cinema screenings or big screens or maybe through VR and AR. Also, schemes that allow pricing to be accessible, so you know, although the top price tickets are expensive, you can come see any show here for a tenner, more or less. And 40% of the tickets are 40 quid or less. But also to have a young ROH scheme, which now has 30,000 members, a last minute ticket, and then you have special performances where you, know, you target a particular audience. I'm often asked what my favourite sound experience at the Opera House is, and I always say, well, it's a school's matinee. And not what's on stage, but the um, sound of a group of you know, 20 kids walking into the auditorium for the first time, and that collective gasp of, Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then at the end, then they just go absolutely berserk. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just fantastic, incredible, yeah. cool stuff. Has there anyone you've been particularly starstruck to have met? Oh, I mean, yeah, of course. Who's <laughs> been the... Well, number one, this is both starstruck and beyond nervous, was my final interview for this job. And Simon Rowley, who's the chairman, super, super smart guy. I've gone through all of the formal bits of the interview. And he said, I just want you to meet the senior team, just to make sure that by solving one problem, I'm not creating four others. But there's only one of them that really matters. And that is, if um, Tony Pando doesn't get on with you, then I'm afraid you're toast. 
the setup was in a local hotel in the basement. I was sitting there, and then these people would walk in one by one, and we'd have a chat. And it was all fine, actually. We'd go on with everyone. It was, it was really clear. But, but then Tony was the last, and I was off the scale nervous because he's my hero, um, you know, musically. I mean, he's just a genius. Just to clarify um, for people listening, Antonio Zapano is a musical director. Yeah, yeah. So, house and superstar. Yeah, so um, Maestro Sir Antonio Papano, or our Tony's, he's without doubt the greatest conductor of opera alive. And also the most inspiring coach of the voice. He can get things to do things that no one else quite can. So I was both starstruck, off the scale nervous. <laughs> and um, had my future on the line. Uh, thankfully, we got on, so... <laughs> uh, but then, you know, lots of other things. Meeting um, Placido Domingo uh, for the first time, great, uh, iconic tenor. You know, you meet the most phenomenal people in this world, uh, and I, I never, ever lose sight of the, the, the people who come here are people who, with either a balletic gesture or the inflection of a few tiny muscles in their throat, can bring north of 2,000 people to tears. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty damn amazing. Now you are running the place. How would you describe your leadership style, and have you found it easy to transition from managing a section of a big organisation to managing a whole organisation? I don't think about easy. It was less daunting than I thought it was going to be. Partly because my spine responsibilities at the Tate had grown over time and were pretty broad. Both organisations are doing very similar things. So you're creating a platform for the most extraordinary artists um, to create life-changing experiences and you've never got enough money. Um, so that's the you know, same old, same old. And in terms of my management style, I try to be reasonably informal, don't play on hierarchies or power. I try to be really clear about what you're trying to achieve, what's, what you want the world to be saying about you, what the story is. Chief exec's job is about convening and getting the story straight, and then building and enabling a team of people, and then actually helping to raise the money that will enable the story and the team to do their thing. With the arts, Everyone can have an opinion, and we also are very much in the public glare. What's been the most controversial, almost challenging issue you've had to face? Quite a load. Um, <laughs> probably here was when we did a production of Guillaume Tell, uh, William Tell, which is uh, opera by Rossini. And the particular production that we put on was by an Italian director called Daniela Micheletto. And it was looking at this piece, which is about war and occupation and individual heroism through a more or less contemporary lens, looking at it in quite an unflinching way and the sort of horrors that that can present. There's one particular scene in the opera where Rossini has the Austrian occupiers forcing a group of Swiss girls and young women to dance at pointed weapons. And what Micheletta did was, well, in a contemporary scene, uh, making people dance doesn't really sort of communicate the horrors and ravages of war. And sexual violence is definitely um, part of it, however, and uh, all the stories of in the Balkans War about the forced rape of victims of Srebrenica and all that sort of stuff. He made this very powerful scene, really uncomfortable, deeply disturbing are these occupying forces uh, stripping and raping uh, one of the um, villages. I actually defend his artistic decision to do that but what we didn't do uh, was actually tell the audience that that was coming ah. and and also we didn't communicate I think adequately the um, production style that they were going to expect so the thing about Rossini is that there's a bunch of there's a, you know, a lot of fans of Bel Canto 
um, because the music is very beautiful, very lyrical, um, would be sort of going into that production without, they hadn't been told what was going to see, expecting something, you know, sort of lyrical 1830s, picturesque, think of the Lone Ranger um, theme tune, that's the opening overture. And uh, and what they got was something really quite contemporary, quite challenging and deeply uncomfortable, and they just went berserk. Mm-hmm. And there was booing um, during the scene, and it was a really, really uncomfortable position for everybody. Performers on stage, mm-hmm. or for the management, the post bag was off the scale, huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a really difficult time. Uh, it was a difficult time for me personally as well, because it was in the last few weeks of my brother's life. Um, and so when it all kicked off, I was spending you know, what turned out to be his last couple of weeks actually together in um, the Isle of Wight before he went home to die. So that was a that was a really challenging mm-hmm. thing. But having said that, there are always flip sides. What it really communicated to me in a way that pretty well nothing else would have done as powerfully is how much the audience care. Probably nine out of ten letters I got or emails were from people who hadn't seen the show. And the reason why they were writing in was because their Royal Opera House had let them down. And and that was super powerful. And also it was an incredibly powerful lesson for us about supporting each other through that as a team, mm-hmm. uh, the management team at the time got really close to dealing with that. You know, every um, night we'd go and talk to the chorus who were performing while this was going on to you know, give them extra support, to reinforce the fact that it's not them, it's us, and framing it to the audience in a way that they can make, they, then they can make the right choices. We actually hadn't um, anticipated the reaction that there would have been. So we all just a bit too close to it. It was all about just, just having the right level of distance so you can actually judge. Um, Perhaps another tricky one was there was a sort of fairly recent case of hearing loss in musicians. That issue covers other live music venues as well. And so what do venues have to do to protect musicians' hearing, but then also enjoyment and all these facts. Yeah, the long-term impact of exposure to lots of sound and the impact that the musicians face, that's been around forever. Mm. The case wasn't particularly about that. We have a relationship with Highland Street Hearing, every member of the orchestra has an annual audiometry test, people are fitted up with custom moulded earplugs, we have a sound management team working with new technologies for pit lining and so on. The tricky thing about this particular court case was the incident happened at a time where the member of the orchestra was wearing ear protection. So the overall level of sound exposure that they had at that moment was below the legal limit. The original court case said that one of the reasons why we were at fault was that we hadn't required the compulsory wearing at all times of ear protection. And that would have just made music making impossible mm-hmm. because if you're wearing earplugs and you're a brass player, that gives you more hearing damage than if you're not. And if you're a conductor and you're trying to balance the sound in a really quiet piece, how do you do that plugs in? So the, on appeal, we, that particular bit of the ruling was overturned. But what it has done, I guess, uh, and that, which is no bad thing, is to make it clear that we must redouble our efforts to do whatever we can to mitigate the impact of long-term sound exposure. War and Peace. Yes. And that's one of the books you've chosen. Yes, so yes, yes, yes. How did that come into your life? Well, so the one piece actually is Welsh National Opera, the Academy of Children. I went through a phase a few years back, years ago, probably like 15 years ago, of reading in sequence a classic, a uh, piece of contemporary pop fiction and something factual. And my classic I'd never read was War and Peace, so I had a hard time to get on with it. I just loved it. 
Yes, there's obviously this connection with the Iliad because it's a grand epic sweep of extraordinary characters. But it's the most extraordinary piece of um, philosophising, descriptive writing, character painting. And it's just it's just a work of total genius. Do you think it's the kind of book to read again at some point in life? God, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. The characters are just amazing. I mean, you know, Bezoff is... Um, Bezoff and Prince Andrei are, you know, the sort of yin and yang, and they're two of the most extraordinary characters I've ever, ever drawn. There are pieces of descriptive writing in it which are astonishing. There's a wolf hunt in the middle of the book where these bullseye dogs go after the wolf. It's just phenomenal. You feel yourself absolutely in the moment there. Alone in Berlin is another one that's based on real-life historical events. Yeah. A couple rebelling against Nazi tyranny. Why did you choose that one? Well, I was just deeply, deeply moved by it. The basic story is about uh, a couple who decide to rebel against Nazi Germany by writing these postcards which have anti-Hitler slogans on them and they drop them around the place. None of the postcards picked up and read or circulated there. Almost all immediately handed in back to the Gestapo. The protagonists are executed. All the people who are important in their lives basically die and pretty horribly. All the characters are, with only one exception, pretty unpleasant. So it's about as bleak a view of humanity as you can um, draw. And it's off the scale, relentlessly sad. But it's beautifully written. And there is just the tiniest glimmer of light in it. The reason why it resonated with me, and I read it a couple of years ago, it was after my um, brother, but yeah, after my brother died, I happened to read it. And the reason why it particularly resonated, I think, is that the death of loved ones and loss, and there is something you know, sort of off the scale, sad and expresses you know, the ultimate futility of life if you're not madly religious and not madly religious. But in memory there's hope and in stories you can connect to the essence of humanity it does, I think it just does that extraordinarily well and you can also tell the fact that the person writing it had issues I mean mm. Hans, Hans Fadler was major mental health issues and it comes through the writing as well so, so it, it, it's an it's a extraordinary piece This is your dream job? Yep And you've got a CV for your services to the arts Is there anything left on your bucket list that you still like to achieve career wise? I never had anything I wanted to achieve career-wise anyway. <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't have a bucket list, actually. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm really enjoying and doing the job. Um, I would do it forever. Um, and I can't see for a second that I'll ever retire. Um, I think so long as I'm uh, working with interesting people doing things that I think ultimately matter and that my contribution on some level or other makes a difference. And bingo, I'll be happy. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a step up in inverted commas or uh, that's irrelevant. Maybe the next stage might be a portfolio stuff, I don't know. But for the moment, I'm super happy here, working with an amazing bunch of people, doing, I think, stuff that's quite important. Could you yeah. leave us with a, a quote or some, a piece of advice for future students? Yeah, OK, well, uh, um, fake it till you make it would be number one. Yeah. <laughs> number two is trust and, and generosity are two really, really important things, I think. And trust is always something that should be bestowed on people. Uh, don't wait for people to earn it. And being generous with your time, your advice. If you have 
support and friends and uh, you've inculcated that through generosity then you'll be much much more resilient you know life is short my brother died when he was 49 father at 42 uh, we lost two very close friends uh, last year so don't muck around make the most of it and then the final bit is that actually there's a work about uh, these two great Swiss artists one of whom is sadly dead um, Peter Fishley and uh, David Weiss put up on an office building outside Zurich and it's called um, How to Work Better. It's a sort of ironic riff on the self-help management lessons. It's a rather splendid thing. I'll just read it out. So how to work better. Number one, do one thing at a time. Number two, know the problem. Number three, learn to listen. Four, learn to ask questions. Five, distinguish sense from nonsense. Six, Accept change as inevitable. Seven, admit mistakes. Eight, say it simple. Nine, be calm. And ten, smile. Oh, that's pretty good. That's Top ten. Yeah, very much so. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Good luck, Thank you. Thank you. to this episode of Reading People we're Mike Hereford on SoundCloud Apple Podcasts and Stitcher find our contact details in the bio over and out